the NBA championships were fun for me to watch this year. We lived in Milwaukee enough to have a lot of friends up there watching the Bucks play in this championship this year. And um, it was interesting. We, I went backpacking, and they were down 0-2. Kind of thought I'd come out and find out they'd lost the series, but they'd tied it up. And then there were two great games. But what stood out to me, and the point of even sharing this with you, is when you came down to those last couple games, there were 20,000 fans inside the arena, but there were 50,000 fans outside the arena. And then the night they won, some 100,000 fans were in the streets all night celebrating. And can you picture what they were saying? We won. We are the champions. Okay, thousands of people who haven't been on a basketball court since eighth grade PE, <laughs> who've never stepped on an NBA court, were claiming, we won. Identification with someone else and what they do affects you. And we get this when people are cheering for the Olympics, for their country. The ante gets raised a little bit when you think about a lawyer representing you in court, where their actions are going to have an impact on you and whether you're free or not, or whether you pay a fine or not, or get any kind of reward or whatever. It becomes even more serious if it's a major military battle, right? Because suddenly the stakes go up. I, always think of this picture looking down into the Valley of Elah where the tour guide I was with had us up on the hill and this is where David fought Goliath and he said picture what it was like to be part of the Israelites standing looking over the edge of the wall and watching little David go out into the field against Goliath but knowing that the outcome is going to determine your fate. This is a winner-take-all. If he loses you become slaves or you die. The enemies are going to claim their rule by the virtue of the outcome of that battle because what's happening there is going to affect you. Now, there was another battle of even much more significance that involved all of us, everyone that's ever lived, everyone who ever will live. But I don't think we often think of it that way. In the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve were challenged by Satan, there was a battle. And we miss the drama if we don't picture all of heaven watching, knowing what was at stake. Because if Adam were to fail the test, which we know now that he did, and he chose to make himself an authority over God, all of humanity falls into sin. All of history since the Garden of Eden has borne the, the horrible marks of those effects of sin as mankind turned its back on God. It enslaves all of us born after that time. The estrangement of people from each other, the violence we see in the world, the ignorance in the world, the hatred we see in the world, a world separated from their loving creator because of that first battle and Adam's loss with Satan. But then we also see the promise in Genesis 3 that God gave that there would be another battle, one who would come and battle Satan again. The Lord God said to the serpent, <clears throat> I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of God that there would be a deliverer who would do battle with Satan but ultimately would crush his head and be victorious. And as we look through history, as we look through the, the records of Scripture, this battle continued between these two lines, between the seed of Satan in the seed of the woman. There was this lingering promise that God would provide a deliverer to finally defeat Satan, 
But think about as we move through the pages of Scripture, and especially even beginning in Genesis, we've seen Adam and his failure. And then you see sons born thinking, maybe this is the deliverer promised, and from Cain and Abel we find the first murder. Moving only to chapter 6 when we find that, quote, the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and it led to a worldwide judgment in the flood. And then after that, we find men gathering again, trying to build a, a name for themselves and build a tower to heaven that somehow in arrogance they would put themselves above God. And over and over, what do we see? Satan just seems to be winning. We've looked these last few weeks at Matthew's record of this, and especially in the genealogy in chapter 1, when he describes Abraham. And while we find moments where Abraham responded with faith, we also find times where he doubted God, lies about his wife. We find Moses, a murderer, who now in disobedience is kept out from the promised land. We find Israel, who was to be the true son, where time after time we find them instead living with failure and idolatry. We find David, finally the fulfillment of a king and the promise that one would rule, thinking maybe here's the one, and instead we find him as an adulterer and a murderer. And as he records in the exile this key moment of, excuse me, as Matthew records in the genealogy, this key moment of the exile, it's the judgment after this long period of sinful king after sinful king after sinful king, and then four centuries of silence. Through that time, you keep seeing that the promise remains, this promise that God would send a deliverer, the perfect deliverer to defeat Satan, but time after time, it just doesn't happen, and instead, we find that Satan seems to be in control. If you're talking a boxing match, round after round has gone to Satan. Matthew's picked up the story here now and has raised the specter of Jesus being the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, of Jesus being the true promised one. Just think, and I just want to very quickly highlight where we've been in the last three weeks. In chapter 1, he's the promised son of David, the one worthy to be our king. He's also the promised Christ, the anointed one, God himself. And Matthew starts with the clearest hope they had in the first century, and that was a king to rule, freedom from oppression. But he also says, but the real oppression was not to Rome, but instead in your hearts because of sin, and Jesus was the one who could save mankind from that. In chapter 2, let's stay here for a second. In chapter 2, he continues that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament promises, ones that weren't expected. He will be the true, perfect Moses, the true, perfect David. He will be the true son, fulfilling what Israel should have itself. All the hopes that they failed to live up to, he would be the perfect fulfillment of that. But he also would suffer, be despised, be rejected on our behalf. In chapter 3, John the Baptist presents him as the promised fulfillment. But this unexpected Jesus demands a response, a choice. John says the way to enter his kingdom, to follow him, is through repentance, not through your own works, not through being good enough. In fact, when the Pharisees and Sadducees come out to him, he calls them out, you brood of vipers, you, literally, you sons of serpents related to Satan. Don't be like them. Instead, because judgment is coming, the phrase there, the ax is already at the root. Instead, there's going to be a, a sifting, a, a a, a breaking apart of the wheat and the chaff with judgment coming. Why? 
because to hear Jesus, to see him, the, the promise being fulfilled in him, it demands a choice. A choice of whether you're going to do it your own way and continue in the pattern we've seen all through the Old Testament, or whether you will repent and humbly submit to him. And then Jesus amazingly identifies with us as sinners in his baptism, a foreshadowing of his identifying with us at the cross. He fulfills this pattern of humility preceding exaltation, and he becomes the picture of the true son Israel. Jesus keeps defying expectations. And at that point, after his baptism, the father pronounces, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But notice something. His ministry hasn't even started yet. There have been no miracles. We've heard no teaching from him. He hasn't been tested in the way we will see later. Okay, for those of you college football fans watched the change this year, he's the five-star recruit who has a million-dollar contract for his image and likeness but has never taken a snap with his team yet. But now the game begins because now we find that Jesus will be led into the wilderness specifically to face the temptation with Satan. Now, we are going to do a comparison between the Garden of Eden and the wilderness because there's such close parallels between this temptation of Satan and the one who failed and whose disobedience led to our death and our enslavement to sin versus the one that we will see as victorious over sin and over Satan. Now, I should note here, this isn't the first time Jesus has ever had a temptation. He's lived in a sinful world as a human being for 30 years now. Think about this. For 30 years, he's heard his own name taken in vain. He's watched people mistreat each other, and even him. He's watched other children fighting when they were playing. He's heard angry customers in the carpentry shop with him or even with Joseph. From all we sense, Jesus actually attended the funeral of Joseph who had cared for him. He lived in a world that was affected by sin, and he was still perfectly righteous. But, I had a professor point this out to me many years ago that has just stuck with me. Jesus, while living in the sinful world, never became desensitized to sin. Sin was always just as repulsive to him as the first time he saw it while living here on earth. Now, contrast the way we tend to become too used to sin. We become numb to it. Uh, I remember one summer working at a machine tool shop between years in college, and let's just say they used lots of colorful metaphors and had stories that just were not appropriate to be heard or shared and humor that was just crude and vulgar. And when you first heard it, for me, coming out of my year at Cedarville that summer, it was just offensive and shocked me, and you kind of resisted it. And then within just a few weeks, you kind of heard it, and you just didn't pay attention to it. And then suddenly, in your mind, you were finishing what they were saying or wondering how it was going to end. It took just a short time to become desensitized to sin. That never happened with Jesus. His entire life, he was confronted with sin in a way that we can't understand watching people cheat each other, watching people become bullied, selfishness, jealousy, all of the effects of sin he saw and he faced, and he was still completely righteous. But now, Jesus is going to be led into one-on-one -on -one battle. Now it's time to step into the arena. I'm always curious what Satan's response was. 
Is Satan going, you know, all of history he's won is like, bring it on, is, you know, all of hell shouting, let's get ready to rumble. I just don't know. Or is he terrified of what's coming? But what we see is all of heaven, all of mankind from all of history is watching, holding their breath. Understand? Because in this battle, if Jesus loses, it's over. If Jesus loses, all hope is lost forever. He's the one and only hope for our salvation. And so now when he battles Satan, if Satan wins, there is no hope. We will be controlled by sin forever. All mankind will always be separated from God, enslaved by sin. The stakes could not be higher. And we need to understand that to make sense of what's happening here in the story that Matthew records. Now, we're going to have two lessons that become intertwined about this as we look, and two different things to look at. One is a key lesson about Jesus and who he was and his victory over Satan that we'll see. You've already read the end of it, so we've, spoiler alert, Jesus wins, okay? So we're going to see that, and that's the emphasis. We're also going to see some things about ourselves and temptation, maybe some lessons that we can learn about approaching temptation and some lessons from Jesus that will help us through this. Now, we're going to look at four different areas as we compare the Garden of Eden and the temptation of Adam, and then the wilderness and the temptation of the last Adam, Jesus. Look at the setting, then the test, then the response of each, and then the result. So let's begin by looking at the setting. And I realize there's a lot of text up here. I'll just highlight the key phrases from these 11 verses to to show what we're looking at with each of the points. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, one of the biggest understatements in Scripture, he was hungry. Now, think about the comparison here. When we look at Adam in the Garden of Eden, all of his desires being fully met, jobs that's completely satisfying, no outstanding bills, no disagreements with people, no guilt, with companionship that God created with his wife, living where he saw God's work each day and recognized it as God's hand, seeing God daily in the garden as God came and met with them, this perfect environment, it still is one of the amazing things to me is that Adam would choose at that point to say, God, there must be something more and reject God. Jesus, on the other hand, the, the place chosen for him to do battle with Satan was chosen by the Spirit. He was intentionally led into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. Jesus, completely alone. Jesus, not being given food for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is amazing. You think about any battle. You've got a, you know, as a student, a big exam coming up. You go, I think I'm just going to fast for the next seven days and kind of avoid sleep, and that'll get me ready. And you know that doesn't work, right? Big sports event, you go, I'm going to fast before it. Well, no, here he's doing the significant battle for all of us, for all of history, and he goes without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's the Father's plan to prepare him as he places him in the wilderness. So when we look at the settings, the amazing, the the perfect environment of Eden versus the wilderness, harsh, doing without, alone. And then we find Satan come and test him. And I highlight just this phrase because it keeps being repeated. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, 
Now notice what happened in the chapter before. Jesus was baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and the voice from heaven pronounces what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So God himself has just pronounced from heaven, this is my Son. This is the Son of God. And what does Satan say? So if you're the Son of God, then first thing he does is challenge the words of God. Challenge the Father say, if that's true, then you should, if that's true, if you're really the Son of God, then, and notice also here when he says, for it is written, and actually Satan starts quoting Scripture to Jesus. Um, I just need to make a comment in, in all of this as we look at this. There's a couple things we need to learn about Satan from this. One, Satan is real. There's a real battle with a real person here going on, and that's been true for all of history since his fall. And two, Satan is pretty smart. We're going to have a hard time even figuring out what some of these temptations are. And Satan knows Scripture probably better than we do and is trying to use Scripture against Jesus to convince him to sin. Think then about what these temptations are. In Eden, this test of did God really say... Did God say that if you eat of that, you're going to die? Questioning God's word. And then saying, well, you won't die. Actually denying God's word. And then saying, for God knows, that is, that if you eat this fruit, you'll know something you don't know now. It'll be a new experience. You'll be like God. Do you hear what he's saying? In this garden, you as you meet with God, the picture you have of God isn't right. You can't trust him. God's holding out on you. God knows that if you eat this fruit, Something better is waiting for you, and God's keeping you from it. God's not good. God's withholding from you what would really bring what you really want. We come here to the temptation of Jesus. Did God say that you're the son? Well, does God care? Can you really trust him? Here you are in the wilderness, and you haven't had food for 40 days, and that's the Father's best for you? Can you really say that God is good if you have to do without those desires being met? Can you really trust him, or is he holding back something from you? It's interesting. We, we look at these three temptations, the turn the stones into bread, or being led up on the temple and saying, jump off and let him prove his word is true, or kingdoms of the earth, you're the king, here's the kingdoms. You can have them now without going through the path the Father has for you. And I, I look at these and sometimes feel like we kind of go, well, these really don't apply to us, right? Because very few of us have been tempted to turn stones into bread, right? Very few of us are tempted to jump off a building, and we kind of go, how do these relate? And so how does his temptation have anything to do with us, especially when Hebrews says that Jesus has been tempted in every way like us? But let's think about what's really behind each of these temptations. The first Will you trust the Father even if His plan includes living with legitimate but unmet desires? Will you trust the Father even if His plan includes living with legitimate but unmet desires? I notice, and this one, and I struggled for a long time with what the temptation actually was. Turn these stones into bread. Well, He's hungry, but hunger's not sinful. That's a desire that God built within us just as human beings. So he has a legitimate desire that's not being met. And he is the Son of God who has the power to turn the stones into bread. So what 
what would be the sin? What would be wrong with him actually turning the stones into bread and eating? And again, that's me. I, for a long time, I wrestled with that, which just tells us again how subtle Satan is until we look again at the context, back up a little and understand this. It was the Father's plan for him to live with those desires not being met. It was the Father's plan for him to be led into the wilderness. It was the Father's plan for him to go without food. Do you hear what the temptation is? Is the Father really good? Can you really trust the Father if you have to do without? Listen, I watch us face the same kind of temptation frequently today. Um, I've, I've worked over time with a number who are single, having never married, a legitimate desire for marriage or for a relationship. But in God's timing, in God's economy, that isn't there and it isn't provided. And you know the struggle that comes to the front? Is God really good? Would a good God really have me do without these things? Very honestly, I struggled with this as a young child and growing up as a teen when my father died when I was only eight and he'd been sick for three years before that. Would a good God allow a child to go without having a father in the home for those years? Would a God, can you trust a God like that? It might be health issues. When you're going, God, I would use my life to serve you, but I'm struggling with these chronic issues, these longings, <clears throat> these desires that are unmet, and the test. Is the Father really good? Can the Father be trusted? Or the second, when he's taken to the top of the temple and told to jump off, he says, will you submit to the Father without making him prove himself? Can you submit to the Father and follow him without making him prove himself to you? And he quotes the Old Testament passage that if you do this, the angels are going to protect you. So if that's, if that's what God promised, let him show it. Let him prove it. And it's funny because I often would see, as we look at this, we kind of go, well, I would never do that. I would never say I'm going to test God or make him prove himself to me. But I've been at this long enough to watch people who have made commitments to follow Jesus who at some point stop. They bail out on the church. They bail out on the commitments they know they should be making. They bail out even on following Jesus. And most often what I see behind it is that they weren't getting the life that they wanted. There was something missing or some way that they thought, if that's what God's going to do to me, so they didn't get the relationship or marriage. They, they didn't get the job they wanted. They didn't feel they were treated fairly by people. There was a major loss or a death and grief that they're having to deal with. They were disappointed that God hasn't provided the life they thought they should have or that they really wanted. Do you understand what's behind that? That's really saying, God, I will follow you if. I'll follow you if you provide what I desire. I'll follow you if you provide what I want. I'll follow you if you meet the needs the way I think they should be met. That's testing God. And that's a danger for all of us, a temptation we can face to say, God, I'll follow you if you live up to my expectations, if you'll grant my desires. Jesus was tempted with that. And then the third, Will you obey? Will you follow the Father even if there is great cost? And even if the end, he's the one getting the glory, not you. You understand, Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and said, they're all yours. Now, in the end, they're going to be his, right? 
So, again, what's the temptation? The temptation is that in the Father's plan, the way to receive the eternal kingdom for Jesus was through the cross. It was a path of suffering that ultimately would provide the victory. And he's saying here, you can have it. It's what the Father's promised anyways. Just have it now instead of going there. And the question is, will you follow the Father's plan for your life if it involves sacrifice, if it involves cost, if the Father's plan is a course of suffering? The temptation here to take a shortcut, to circumvent God's path and avoid the cost, the time, to get what at the end of the day you convince yourself is what God wants. You understand why the author of Hebrews can say Jesus faced temptations just like we do? But then we find Jesus' response. Jesus says simply, it is written, again it is written. Be gone, Satan, why? For it is written. And we find Jesus coming back to Scripture, the true picture of God and the God who should be trusted. But Satan has pulled verses out to kind of convince you this is what you really want and to torque Scripture the way he would intend. Jesus responds in the way, and I like the phrase Trent used a couple weeks ago when he said we need to be whole Bible Christians, the whole picture of God and his word. But we need to look a little more carefully, and I just want to dig into just one of these for a couple minutes to kind of see the pattern of how he followed. Notice when after the first one, turn these stones into bread, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now here Matthew is giving a direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy that every Israelite in his day would have been very familiar with. And here it is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Understand again, we, we've seen that Matthew develops this pattern of Israel and Jesus following the same pattern as a, a type. We find Israel in bondage being brought out of Egypt and then taken through the Red Sea and then led into the wilderness purposely to be tested and learn to trust God. Jesus brought out of Egypt, then through the waters of baptism, now led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And we have to consider the parallel between how they responded to this. While Jesus responds saying, it is written, it is written, man doesn't live by bread alone, and he quotes this passage that Israel should have learned. But think about how Israel responded. Israel, we're told, as a nation, had cried for freedom from slavery for centuries. They're brought out, led to the Red Sea, and the first thing they do at that point is to say, what, did God bring us out here to die in the wilderness? And God provides a cloud to protect them, takes them across the Red Sea safely, and then destroys the most powerful army on earth behind them, right there. And they praise God, and then go a little further and get thirsty. And they say, did God bring us out here to die of thirst? And God provides miraculously for them. And they go a little further and get hungry, and they say, did God bring us out here to die of hunger? At least where we were in Egypt, we had food in our pots, and God provides manna. And they go a little further and go, there's only so many ways you can cook manna. We're tired of this, right? And God provides meat for them. Ultimately, they just, were, 
The, the words used throughout the Old Testament are that they were complainers, bitter, complaining, always whining, never enough. Finally, when led to Mount Sinai, as God himself comes down to give them his law, provides the Ten Commandments, his instructions for life, they're off building a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping an idol. They never learned the lesson. They were to be a model. They were to be an example, but they were unwilling to obey. They were focused on the desires they had and those being met the way they wanted them, but unwilling to trust, unwilling to trust God as a good God, instead constantly whining and complaining. But now Jesus responds to Satan's attack in the wilderness after 40 days without food and does what? Quotes the exact lessons that they were supposed to have learned when they were in the wilderness. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but God, his goodness, his plan can be trusted. We must rely on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see this response where in the Garden of Eden, the woman saw the fruit, desired it, ate it, gave it to Adam, he ate, and the ultimate uh, Jesus, in contrast to that, replies with Scripture, truly representing God and responding with great trust. Now, listen, there are some lessons we can learn. Again, the primary focus here from Matthew is that Jesus is victorious over Satan. But we also see some patterns of responding to temptation recognizing that Satan tempts us in the same way, with the same questions about God's goodness, about its pattern in our life. The response of Scripture. Notice that the temptation was right on the heels of, if you will, a spiritual high. The proclamation of the Father being good and that following immediately to a time of testing, which somehow still continues to surprise believers when that happens. Jesus responding with trust, responding with Scripture. There's patterns there that we can see. But the real focus is that Jesus submitted to the Father's plan and said, the Father is good. Listen, Jesus said, I would rather be hungry in the Father's plan than be satisfied outside of it. And he demonstrated that we can trust God. And how does the passage finish? As angels came and ministered to him. That is, the Father provided for his needs in his way at his time. That phrase we often use, all in good time, should be all in God's time. Jesus knew that and demonstrated that for us. The ultimate result of this great battle is sin and death because of Adam's sin, but instead righteousness and life because of what Jesus has done. His perfect obedience putting him in the place where he could be our sacrifice. Now, I want to read again the verses that we read out loud just a few moments ago. As Paul summarizes this truth so clearly in Romans chapter 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death has spread to all men because all have sinned. But in contrast, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That Jesus, in obedience, now can be the one who can stand in our place and can ultimately defeat Satan on the cross. I picture here in the garden the, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and the promise that Jesus, the deliverer, will crush the head of Satan. I picture him with his head, or excuse me, his 
a foot on the head of Satan, starting the pressure, but it's going to continue, right? Um, I, I, okay, I keep chuckling about this, so I have to share it. Just um, When we had just moved into our house, um, we had land and the, the lawn was just growing up, and I came home one day, I'd been out running errands, and Amy had been mowing the lawn with our little craftsman riding mower, and she, when I walked in the door, just said, you need to go out in the yard and take care of this. Well, as we talked and as I went out there, I found out what had happened. She was driving, you know, mowing the lawn on the tractor and saw the snake coming this way. And so she veered off her path and put the front tire and the back tire over the head of the snake. Stopped, backed up, and put the back tire and the front tire over the head of the snake. Stopped, went forward, put the front tire and the back tire over the head of the snake. Then walked over to the fence row and picked up a big rock and walked over and dropped it on the head of the snake. When I got home, she simply said, you need to go take care of that, which I laughed at because I thought, I think you already have taken care of that. <laughs> and we find this pattern here where Jesus now starts crushing the head of the serpent. But then we're going to see as we move forward in Matthew, his teaching that brings truth where there had been darkness, brings miracles, showing power over sickness and disease, over death, over nature itself, all showing his authority over Satan and his victory over Satan, leading to this ultimate victory on the cross where Satan is finally defeated. And yet we know that it gives us the promise that as we look to the future, the day will come where Satan and sin is fully abolished forever. Jesus, the victor, can do that because of his authority over Satan. So we found here in these first couple chapters of Matthew all these stories about the, the person of Jesus, that is, the perfect David, the perfect Moses, the fulfillment of being the Nazarene, the outcast who would be rejected, all the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of righteousness. We've seen testimonies of the genealogy. We've seen testimonies of the stars themselves and the Gentiles, the testimony of angels, the testimonies of prophets, the testimonies of John the Baptist, the testimony of God himself as the voice speaks from heaven, and now the testimony of his victory over Satan. And now it's time for his ministry to begin. And Matthew transitions as he tells us that now with that declaration of who Jesus was, he begins teaching. We find here in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus um, John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, exactly as we were told but then he begins with this message. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now notice, this is word for word exactly the same message that John had given in the chapter before. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, do you understand the point of this message? Again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming out, and John is calling for the people to be baptized, a baptism of repentance, to identify that they were repenting of their sins. And John says, repentance, humility before God, acknowledgement of your sin, that's the pathway. That's the entrance into the kingdom. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come out proud of themselves, judging him, saying, we can be good enough. We're better than other people. And he turns and says, you're the ones about to be judged. That's not the entrance into the kingdom. Jesus, as he begins his message, picks up the same theme and says, do you want to be my follower? It starts with humbly repenting of your sin, acknowledging that you can never be good enough and you can never defeat Satan on your own. 
listen, this whole story of the temptation, there, there are some lessons we can learn from it about how to respond to temptation, but we cannot walk away thinking the lesson is, if I do these things and I quote these scriptures and I respond this way, I can beat Satan. And the whole point of history all the way through the Old Testament that we've seen so far is that man can never defeat Satan. We cannot on our own. Instead, the point is that Jesus was victorious over Satan. And when we identify with him and submit to him and a repentance turn to him, we then can be part of his kingdom. And then through his spirit, we can see progress and some growth in defeating Satan. But it's always identifying with him through his power, not through something we could do on our own. And Jesus begins proclaiming this message, performing miracles, teaching, and the crowds start to follow him. And interestingly, we're going to find as we move through Matthew that some of those crowds stuck with him and some, the more they heard the story and the more they heard what it really meant to be his disciple, they started fading away. We also find in this chapter, in this transition, that Jesus now starts calling his apostles. And we come to verse 18 uh, through verse 22. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, again, in fulfillment of where he would start his ministry. He sees these two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this, if we put the gospel side by side and take the story of Jesus and laid it out chronologically, we would find that this isn't the first time they've seen Jesus or heard some of his teaching or those things. They've been around him, they've observed it, but this is the point where Jesus said, it's time for a decision. You know who I am, you know the claims, and my call on you is follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Listen, we cannot hear what we've heard in these first three, three and a half chapters of Matthew about the claims of Jesus and who he was without recognizing that that demands on us a call. Meeting Jesus, being confronted by Jesus, is never a neutral event. You either say he is who he says he is and he's worthy of me following and you commit your life to him, or by not doing that, you're saying I won't follow him. He's not worthy of my life. I'm not willing to follow him. And Matthew, I think, here is saying there is this call, this question. Is he worthy of our submission, of our obedience, of our sacrifice? And at this point in the story, Matthew says to these disciples, it's decision time. Are you in? Are you ready to follow? Here again, what he said so far. In chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus is the perfect king, the son of David, who then rightfully demands our submission to him. He is also the promised Savior, God himself in human form. Jesus, who would save us from our sins, calls for us to submit to him in faith and trust him. In chapter 2, the stars and the Gentiles bowed down before him. He says, are you willing to honor him? He's also the fulfillment of all the promises from the Old Testament and the patterns established by God. He is the perfect Moses. He is the perfect David. He is the perfect true son, Israel. Are you willing to trust him? And surprisingly to them, he's the despised and rejected Nazarene. Will you identify with him in suffering? In chapter 3, we find that he is the righteous judge. That is, again, John the Baptist says, repent and bow before him. Why? Because judgment's already here. 
That is, if you reject the king, there will be loss and eternal judgment. If you follow him, then you can become part of his kingdom. But he, he calls for repentance. And when God himself speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, it's a call to actually listen to him. And then in chapter 4, we find that he is victorious over Satan. He is the only hope to defeat sin and Satan and death. And Matthew then transitions and says, so the call is here. And I leave the question marks to ask, what's your response to that? It's a call for all of us to follow. And it begs this question, is he worthy? And what we want to do now as the worship team comes is sing this song, Is He Worthy, as a response, if you will, as a prayer to reflect on this. And honestly, if this is not a decision you've been willing to make and you're holding back. Just listen to the song and weigh in your heart whether he is worthy and whether he should be followed. If it is a decision that you've made, now is the time to sing this in praise and in gratitude for what he's done and who he is. But let's just sing this song together as an act of response and a time to reflect and examine our hearts about these truths that Matthew's presented us with. <laughs> 